in these months in the Gospel of John, looked at a lot of things. Beginning with the seven miracles that we looked at, beginning at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, where he literally turned water into wine. And it wasn't just any wine. It was really good wine. I mean, kind of blew the... the uh, the guy that was in management over the feast away and, and, and all, and, and went on and looked at uh, the, the nobleman's son where he healed the guy from afar and the guy at the pool of Bethesda and, and on and on. We've looked at these miracles. We've looked at the I am statements that Jesus has made. And, and all of this has been over a, a period of a little over three years, not quite three and a half years. And now we're down to the last week of Jesus's life on earth, as it is, of his public ministry. And at this point in the Gospel of John, we close out. John closes out for us the public ministry of Jesus. After this, I mean, we're not finished. There's a lot. If you look further on, you'll see that there are a whole lot in the the following chapters of red letters. If you have a red letter Bible, there's a bunch that goes on because Jesus stops reaching out publicly at this point and begins to minister timeless truths precious truths, powerful truths to his men, to the the people that had become his disciples. And so, uh, again, we'll see the last appeal he makes to the religious leaders. We see that as he closes out his public ministry, he closes it out with an offer of life. He doesn't close it out with condemnation. Very powerful passage here. Uh, We've been looking at this thing, and, and, and we'll see in if, if you Again, if you have a red-letter Bible, look uh, at verses 37 to 43. We'll get there this morning. I don't know that we'll finish the chapter because I know me. <laughs> and so, uh, But 37 to 43, John summarizes actually Jesus' public ministry. And then verses 44 to 50, Jesus' own words, John pens Jesus' own words, in Jesus summarizing his public ministry. So this is sort of a summation here as we get into this last section in this, in this gospel. We're not quite there yet, but I just want to kind of oil the, 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 the pump here and, and get you to where you're understanding the way that this looks as we back off from it. You know, one of the ways I like to teach, I've mentioned it before, is I call it zoom out, zoom in. I, it's very important for us to be able to get the context of what God's word has to say by zooming out, looking at the greater context. Uh, And I use four, I use the cultural context, the historical context, the textual context, and the contextual context, okay? It's very, very safe in studying God's word to be able to unpack it in a right manner to be able to do that. So I like to zoom out, and that's what I'm doing when I'm just just kind of describing the rest of this chapter for you. It's It's a zoom out type of a thing. And then we zoom in and we say specifically, okay, well, Lord, what do you have to say? What are you saying to me? What are you saying to the church? How does it apply to my life? but we want to understand it in context. We want to be able to study God's word and we don't just study it so that we can be head smart. We study it so that we can understand and know what his will specifically is for us, what his will generally is for the church and so that we can understand and walk in these things. It's useless, folks, if we don't apply his word to our life. Then we just might as well come down here and get a book report because that's what it amounts to if we're not in that place of saying, bread of heaven, feed my soul. So uh, with that, we've looked at the Greeks. Last week, and I'll share something with you, uh, last week's message was not the one that I intended. (laughs) 
I had gone all the way up through Saturday with a different message that would have covered a lot of what we're going to cover today. And I just sensed the Lord just kind of landing on me and giving me a message that's relevant to our culture, to the culture that we live in, seeing there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon wrote that way back then. We see that in the days of Jesus, that Jesus lived in a corrupt, godless culture, in the, in the Hellenistic culture of the day. And we see that now, look at us around us today. I mean, uh, I, I was looking at something I mentioned in the men's breakfast yesterday, uh, that Greg Laurie is doing this Harvest Crusade in Southern California, and he actually had his billboard advertising pulled in one place. Uh, it was at a bunch of billboards that he had, and they pulled it under the auspices of, and I, if you guys know me, I, I spent a lot of years in the billboard advertising business, like north of 40, <laughs> and um, still have some my finger in it in a few places, but um, the contractual language there is uh, the language that they cited for pulling these ads is the same language that companies had put in there initially to prevent an advertiser from putting up pornography or other really offensive material. And they actually use the same verbiage to pull Christian ads from the public view. Now, there's a broader thing that's going on there. It's sort of like what happened with the separation of church and state. It doesn't, it's been so redefined over the years that it means nothing like what the original framers of the Constitution and the people that framed that amendment, the separation of the, the church, the, the, the state cannot dictate matters of faith and practice. That's how it was designed. But now it's run up the flagpole by every liberal mindset out there to mean something totally different. And it's been part of how our culture has exited uh, the, the part of why we're in the post-Christian era. So that kind of thing, that, de that decision this last week opens the door to redefine contracts to where anybody and everybody now can reject any Christian media being put into the public view. Uh, very dangerous, but it's the culture we live in. God's not surprised by it. I'm not surprised by it. And, and what he does is he calls us to live well within it and to live uncompromisingly within it because the days are evil. We can expect that, folks. It's, we, should, we should not live our lives in shock and awe at the culture around us. It's corrupt. It redefines things all the time. And if we don't stand on God's word, we're just adrift. We really don't have anything to anchor us. So we looked at this culture thing that was happening in the first century last week and, and the relevance that it has for us today, that, it, it, that the only way that we will stand is if we're standing strong in the Lord. And, and what's interesting to me as we go on here in the Gospel of John in chapter 12 here is that Jesus didn't hate well, he, he did not go with the culture. He, he stood against the culture, but he loved the people. And, and, and he worked in the culture. And, and, and again, our job as the church is to not allow the culture to come and infiltrate the church and to pollute us. Our job is to influence the culture, and it's becoming more and more difficult to do that. The church historically has always influenced the culture around us, not the culture coming in. And now we want to look like the world so we have broader appeal. Hogwash. I don't believe that. I believe that we are to be a light, and we're to love the people that are in the world. We're not to be a part of it, because friendship with the world is hostility. That's what the word enmity means, is hostility towards Christ. So we draw a very clear line. 
and we do well to walk by that. Anyway, so <laughs> that's all where we were last week. Not careful, I'll re-preach the whole thing again. <laughs> but we see in this gospel that Jesus is the world's savior. And these Greeks had come to him. The, the Greeks, remember they said, we want to see Jesus. And they came and it was, there's Philip and Andrew and they end up going to Jesus. And then Jesus begins to just simply teach. He doesn't engage these guys personally. And so they come and, and what that's, again, is in the summation of the public ministry of Jesus, the Greeks are coming in here and Jesus says, you know what? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it can't sprout forth much fruit, much grain. And he gives, he gives an analogy, he gives an illustration that a Greek mind would understand. He doesn't say, well, the prophet this or that says. He talks about something very practical, very easy for someone to grasp. And these guys, these Greeks, could understand what he's talking about. And uh, in, uh, in verse 23, we saw that Jesus said, the hours come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And we, we talked about last week that that's a messianic thing. In the, in the book of Daniel, or Daniel, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel, yeah, that's, that's a, one of the other books. Um, but in the, in the book of Daniel, Daniel, back in the Old Testament, I don't know why I'm stuck on that, uh, that, Jesus, or that Jesus is seen there, Messiah is seen there, and he is called one like the Son of Man. And so, and there are many other places in the Old Testament where the Son of Man was put forth, and you can see and identify that this is a messianic term. And so when he says uh, the time is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, they're thinking, yeah, right on, good stuff. Yes, you're here, you're going to throw off Rome, you're going to set up your kingdom, you're going to reign with power and authority from Jerusalem, and the whole earth will be subdued. But then he goes on and he begins to, to explain what he means by being glorified because for them being glorified was, was uh, to be exalted, to be lifted up. He would be lifted up, but not that way, you see. And so uh, they're thinking, they're excited about this. That would have definitely resonated with them. And then as he goes on, he says, uh, most assuredly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Uh, there's a famous phrase uh, that I've heard before, and I ran it across it again. It's the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, when he talks about there has to, that only through death can come life, that's a principle that's true in our lives as well. And I'm not talking about physical death, but it's about dying to self, that uh, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, I die daily. In Romans chapter 12, he says, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable surface of worship. And, and he goes on there. It's a great passage there. But the point is, is that it's only through dying to self that Christ can emerge in my life. Because it's not me, but Christ in me is my only hope for glory, is what the Bible tells us. So he, he gives this illustration to these guys. Uh, and, and he says, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Uh, I remember speaking, I think the first or second time I, I spoke here, I was talking about the upside down kingdom. There was a book that was written many years ago uh, called The Upside Down Kingdom. And what it is, is essentially is that the way that the kingdom of God operates, 
the way that the principles that, that, that we operate by, the way that Jesus laid out the kingdom of God is the polar opposite to the way that the world operates. Uh, and he's, he's saying here that if you love your life, you'll lose it. What does that mean? I, go commit suicide? No, of course not. What it means is that as you die to self, he can emerge. As you die to your own desires, your own thoughts, that as, when a man buries his personal aims and ambitions, then he can become of real use to God. Uh, I know for many years I wanted to be in church leadership. Uh, God had called me to Bible college and all this stuff, and, and it was like, I just, I just want to be a pastor. And, and, and that's a good thing to desire to have, but the Lord had to do a lot of work in me, and he still is. Before I was useful, I had to come to a point of laying it down to come here to this church. The Lord gave my wife and I a vision for ministry that, that was specifically about stepping into uh, uh, an existing church in Oregon back in 2013, five years ago. And, 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 and I, it, I mean, I couldn't understand. I was like, what do you, I don't understand, Lord. I, we both have this strong desire and you've confirmed it. And yet time is going by and it, it, it was four years. I had frankly said, you know what, Lord? If that was you, then you can do it. I'm done. I'm not gonna strive over this. I took a job in Colorado. And, and there I was in Colorado in corporate management, and, and I was there for a whole two months, and my phone rang, and these guys were saying, hey, John, you wanna, you know, there's a church opening up in Oregon, an existing church. And, and I'm thinking, really, Lord? You wanna move me to Oregon via Colorado? <laughs> But that's how God moves. That's how he works. I had to die to that desire is my point. I had to die. I had to, I had to put it on the altar and say, Lord, if that's what you're doing, then our lives are yours. We are not going to try to eke this thing out and build this whole pile of junk here. Uh, Paul in Philippians 3 calls it dung. <laughs> or you could interpret that worse. I'm not going to go there. But the point is, he says, you know, you can have this whole thing in this life and you can protect that. You can spend all your time trying to shore it up and time trying to protect it, or you can die like that grain of wheat and see to it that his life emerges in yours. And so what he's talking about here is you don't go out there and just quit your job. Uh, he says, if any man serves me in verse 26, let him follow me that where I am, that my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. He's not saying, okay, go quit your job, you know, jettison your marriage, do you know, this weird stuff. He's not talking about that at all. He's saying, if you are following me, you will be serving me in your marriage. You will be serving me in your workplace. You will be sold out for me wherever you are. Your circle of friends will reflect the relationship you have with me. Again, it's not that I go out and I just choose Christian friends because if all we did was live our life in a bubble and all we did was hang out with brothers and sisters in Christ, which is a really fun thing and great and good fellowship and all of that, but if that's all we ever did, who would get saved? Who would we reach? How would we let our light so shine before men to glorify our Father in heaven? So it's not that we're to not, to, to be insulated from the world. We live in the world. We live in the culture. We live in this thing that hates God. And yet, when people's lives are pushed out of shape, when people's lives are against the wall, it's interesting. Who do they call? Who do they often reach out to? 
I know in my family, and, and it's not me, it's Christ in me. They'll say, hey, call Uncle John. I can count on him. And I want him to do that because then it gives me the opportunity to build a bridge for the gospel. And, and I've mentioned before, folks, if, if you see someone in need or you're dealing with somebody who needs help and you're helping them, which is the right thing to do most of the time, sometimes the Lord kind of checks us on that because he wants to do something in that person's life that we're not aware of. But if you're involved in that sort of thing and you're not allowing it to be a bridge for the gospel, you're not loving them. You're not loving them. Because it's through those things, it's through the interaction we have with people in the world that we have with our culture around us, that we have with our families and with our friends that are not part of the body. It's through those things that our light can shine. Very, very important that we have a right understanding of these things, that 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 is a bridge. I, and I call it a bridge. I, I always want to use it as a bridge to build so that I can share the love of Christ with them. Oh, thank you, Uncle. Oh, thank you, Uncle John. Thank you. You know, I have a bunch of nieces and nephews is why I say that. Uh, and, and, and yet, it's no, you praise the Lord. And, and I want to be sure that they understand that this is not just me being a nice guy. This is something, the love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ constrains me. The love of Christ is why I am reaching out to you. Very important. So when he says, if anyone serves me, he uses the word servant there as diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon from. It's not um, uh, doulos, which is a bond slave. This is, this is a servant. This is somebody that's a practical servant. Uh, it, it, he says, him my father will honor. Think about that. Uh, that. He says, God will honor you through your service to him. I, I just think that that's amazing. He's, he wants to equip me to serve. He wants to work through me as I serve. And then he wants to honor me for serving. It's just amazing to me how the kingdom of God works in that way. Uh, it's not top down. Yes, it is. I mean, he's God and I'm not. Understand that. But as we serve him, it's not this compulsory, compulsory thing. It's not this thing that he says, you got to do this. I want to serve him. My response to his love poured out, my response to his grace poured out, my response to him working in my life is I want to serve him. Easy to get that the other way around, folks. It's easy to think, well, um, I, I, I've mentioned before, people, uh, I've asked people, well, what were we created for? And very often people say, well, to serve God. No, absolutely not. We're created for fellowship with God. Out of the fellowship that we enjoy, out of being in right relationship with him, out of being in a place where there is this, this wonderful exchange, this fellowship of the spirit that we have, my response, I want to serve him. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He really doesn't. And that's not insulting. It's actually freeing. Because as I walk in that, I realize that he wants to bless me through effective service. So to be a part of his kingdom, to function as a servant, is something that he calls each of us to do. But it flows out of the relationship that we have. Interesting, we're not saved by service, but we're saved to choosing and willing service. We're saved to serve him, not by serving him. 
Uh, it's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we're, it's not, we're not saved by works, but we're saved unto good works. So the three paradoxes we see in this, and then we'll actually get into uh, further in today's text, <laughs> is that he's saying that only by death comes life. And that's paradoxical to the, the natural man kind of scratches his head and says, huh, what are you talking about? Yeah, only by death comes life. By Jesus' death on the cross, could we have eternal life? It's the only way it can come. It is the only way. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other plan. That's it. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, not a way. The second paradox is saying that only by spending our life do we retain it. But spending our life in effective service to him, spending our life in devotion to him, spending our life connected to him. Any other way to spend our life is forfeit. It results in death. And I'm not just talking physical death. The other paradox is saying that only by service comes greatness. We truly live in an upside down kingdom. This is to be greatest in the kingdom, it's to be servant of all. And, and, and we'll talk about in, that in John 13. We'll talk about what it means practically every day to go low, to have a life that's marked by going low. Because it's not about being at the top of the heap. I've had great opportunity in my career path to be at the top of the heap. I, I, you know, had a couple of businesses that, that prospered. And, and then before I came here again, was in Colorado in corporate management and was sort of starting to climb in that but it's, I don't want to be at the top of that heap. I want to be serving the Lord. And whatever that means. And that might be being in management. I'm not saying that those are bad things. I'm just saying that where is your heart? Where, is your, where, where are your priorities? Because so often we can even have veiled, misplaced priorities. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Now we see here in verse 27, we see both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. Fully man, fully God. John doesn't go into a lengthy discourse as the other gospels do about the pain that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, when we get to chapter 17, we see him praying in the garden. And that's the true Lord's Prayer, by the way. The other one in Matthew is the disciples' prayer. Uh, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name, all that. He's telling the guys, he's giving them a pattern for prayer. Oh, I could rabbit trail on that. Stop me, Ron. <laughs> because there's a lot of bad doctrine out there that has to do with that. I know, I know, but I really do want to cover some ground here and I can just go the rest of the time on that. You guys, stop it. Anyway, seriously, guys, that's the disciples' prayer. The Lord's prayer is in John 17. And what he's going to do here is, is in beginning in 13, we're going to be in the upper room at the top of Mount Zion, uh, the highest place in Israel, by the way, the highest, I mean in Jerusalem, the highest place, and the, they, the upper room at the height of the highest place, uh, fascinating to be the same place where the Holy Spirit's given. And he goes from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the lowest place in the city. Interesting. And we'll talk about that more as we go. But the point is, is that we see here that, that in his humanity, he's saying, I'm troubled. I, what do I say? I mean, get some 
get some emotion in this. Jesus had emotions. Yes, he was a perfect man, but he had emotions. And he's saying, so, so what do I say? I've got this, there's sort of this divergence inside of me. I'm, I, I'm a man and I know what's coming. And the cross is looming in front of him. And he's beginning to experience the turmoil that that would bring to him as a man. And yet being perfectly God at the same time, he says, no, I, I, I was born for this. This is why I came to the world. This is why I came to live out my life in front of humanity, to be able to free humanity from the penalty of sin. Not just sins, but sin. All the way back to the garden. I mean, from that point in Genesis where they took the fruit and they ate, all the way to this moment. It was God's design, and this is the pinnacle. This is the moment where he begins to embrace, right in front of him, the cross. Interesting, Jesus, did you know that Jesus grew spiritually? We look at him, and, 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 and rightfully so, we see him as being separate from and above us. He is definitely holy, and that's what holiness is. He uh, was, again, though, fully man, but fully God. And it says, though, in, in Luke chapter 2, it says in verse 52, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He grew spiritually. He wasn't born with Full understanding. He set aside his divine prerogative. He never set aside his deity. Don't get me wrong. Very careful here. Got to understand that he never stopped being God. But he set aside, he emptied himself, taking the form of a man, the form of a bondservant, became obedient. Obedient? That Jesus was obedient? Yeah. Hebrews tells us he learned obedience. Okay, so if we look at that, let's, let's kind of take that apart for a minute. If Jesus learned obedience, does that mean that he had been disobedient? Because what my sort of small brain engages when I talk about somebody becoming obedient is like, oh, well, that means they weren't. No, no, not at all. Um, he was tempted. Hebrews chapter 4 says that uh, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points was tempted as we are and yet without sin. Okay. He learned obedience, Hebrews chapter 5, um, uh, verses 8 and 9. He says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All right. It's walking a thin line here, but it, it makes total sense if you look at it from God's standpoint. He didn't learn obedience because he had been disobedient, but he grew. And as he took on and his, he wrestled, we see here in, in John, and especially if you look at the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was crucified, I mean, he is sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. I mean, he is stressed to the max, to use uh, our, our culture's uh, expression on that. I mean, he is totally stressed out. He's a man. He's fully man. He experiences what we experience and yet never sinned. And so it's important to understand 
that as he goes forward, he's not just saying, hey, I got this nailed, man. I'm good. I'm going to go to the cross. This is easy. No. It makes it all that much more valuable to us to realize that he struggled with this. That he was troubled in his spirit over the cross. And yet he chose what he knew would be the only way. Remember in the garden, he says, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's obedience. You see what I'm saying? And it's beautiful because it, it actually bolsters the effectiveness of the cross. It bolsters the fact that it cost him everything. And when we get to the crucifixion, we'll look at what was happening on that cross was a whole lot more than physical crucifixion. Especially when he cries out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, in Aramaic saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the father turns his back on the son and places the sins of humanity on him, the ugliness of every thought, word, or deed from humanity? Are you serious? That's a big load, something that we cannot grasp. But it was sufficient for him to do that for the joy. Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Praise God. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I've both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is the third time a voice, an audible voice, has come from heaven in Jesus' ministry. Here he is at the very end of his ministry. And this, the, the Father speaks from heaven. At the very beginning of his ministry, what happened? He's there at the Jordan. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do what he says. <laughs> paraphrase but that's what he said and then in the middle of his ministry there at the Mount of Transfiguration uh, up on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and the father speaking so God didn't do this a lot but when he did it was at very important junctures uh, the inauguration of his ministry in the center of his ministry clarifying uh, the, with the law and the prophets God's doing something totally different now the, the representative of the law Moses, the prophets, Elijah. I'm not going to teach on the transfiguration, but oh, I could rabbit trail on that too. Point is, is here at the end of his public ministry, God speaks from heaven yet one more time. It's important as we look at this, when, when God says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. He's going past tense, and future tense. I have glorified it through the work of redemption accomplished by my son alone. And, and yes, I will glorify it through the work of the cross, but I have glorified it through the life that he has led and the life that he has lived. And we'll look at that as we get to the end of this chapter when Jesus summarizes his public ministry. Say, you know what? I have given them what you've given me. Uh, I, and, and they've not believed, but that's not because I haven't expressly invited them to believe. Verse 29, therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. 
The Father was affirming for them that the events which were unfolding were his plans. That's why the Lord spoke. That's why the Father spoke at that time. Jesus is in the middle of, he's prophesying his very soon and imminent death on the cross. He's telling them that he is that grain of wheat that's going to fall to the ground and die. And through it, there'd be a lot of fruit. And, and, and the Father is saying, yes, this is my plan. This has been my plan, and this will be my plan. This is all happening for you. And, and Jesus says, it wasn't for me that that voice came out of heaven. It's for your benefit that you understand. And they didn't understand at this point, but they would certainly look back and have perfect understanding of what these things meant. We're told that, that after Jesus had been glorified, that he opened their understanding. He opened their ability to see and, and to go back and to look at the things that they had gone through, all of these things. I mean, these guys, uh, you know, it's easy to kind of look at the disciples and think, oh, you know, they're kind of nutty sometimes and they just kind of don't get it. And, you know, and, you know, here's Peter, open mouth, engaged brain, you know, all of that. And, and it's kind of fun to look at and stuff. These guys lived it. They lived every minute of it. And they didn't get to read the, the end from the beginning like we have the advantage of doing. Every time they turned around, this rabbi from Galilee was saying something that just blew the top off their heads. I mean, he was like, they're like, their emotional gears would be stripped by the time they got to the cross. I mean, look at Peter. I mean, these guys went through a lot. And they were constantly trying to catch up, trying to understand, what is he talking about? It, 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 to where at some points in the Gospels, it says, and they didn't say anything because they didn't really want to hear what he had to say at that point, because, you know, the, because they didn't know what he would say next. And yet, ever faithful. I mean, these guys were ever faithful, with exception to Judas, obviously. And they would be faithful. They would go to their deaths, everyone except the Apostle John. Would, would experience a, a violent death as a result of their testimony of Jesus. Because they would, that that they didn't get now, they would get very shortly. And their lives would be radically transformed forever. Interesting. <sighs> he essentially is saying, you've seen all that I've done, and when you see what will be done, you will know that my Father is glorified in it because, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The judgment of the world would be the cross and through it Satan would be cast out of having any authority over people, over God's creation. Now, understand, on the cross, Jesus redeemed humanity. He did not yet, he redeemed the authority to purchase the earth. The, the, the earth itself is still, we're told in Romans, it's still subject to futility. The, the earth is subjected to futility. It's, we still live on a fallen planet. We still live in a fallen world. Romans chapter, Revelation chapter 5, there's a beautiful scene in heaven. I would encourage you, go read it. Just read it and, and, and don't try to read into it, but just read it and let the beauty of that passage sink in. It's a scene in heaven where, where John weeps bitterly because he's looking around to see if anyone is worthy to take the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. And he's weeping. He can't find anyone. And, one of the, and, and, a, and a, a strong angel comes in and he says, 
look, there's one who's been found worthy. And he sees, he looks in, in the middle of this whole thing and he, he sees one who was as a lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world. And, and, and then the worship that goes on after that as the lamb steps up and takes the scroll from the father. And, and, and then he begins to strip off the seals, which are judgment on the earth. But as he takes that scroll, it says that there are 10,000 10, times 10,000 beings around the throne, which is like 100 million. I think I, I, I actually punched that into my calculator last night. It's like 10,000 times 10,000. Oh, it's 100 million. But he says, and then after that, he says, and thousands of thousands. I went, oh, that kind of messes it up. I can't give him an exact number. But the point is, a bunch. So there's this worship that's going on in heaven as Jesus takes the scroll, the title deed to the earth, and as he begins to peel off the seals, the wrath of God is poured out on the earth because now he is purging the earth from sin. Now he is completing the work. And you could say that the earth has been in escrow to this point because he purchased the right to take the title deed, but he doesn't take it until the end. Uh, and, and I'm going to save that for Harvey because he's doing a great job in Revelation. <laughs> so, but anyway, it's a great scene in heaven. I mean, read it. It's, it's just beautiful. I mean, the worship that goes on, the 24 elders falling on their face and, and all of the people just worshiping the Lord. And it's just a, an awesome scene. Why? Because of this. Because of this. Because of the redemption that he's accomplishing for humanity as this unfolds. We've been looking at culture. We could define this world that when he talks about that now is the judgment of this world uh, in the sense that Jesus spoke as, uh, of, as uh, the culture that's in opposition to Jesus. And there was a great culture at that time that was in opposition to Jesus. Guess what? Look at the days we live in. We live in a culture that's increasingly hostile and opposed to anything that has to do with Jesus. This isn't by mistake. It's not because we're evolving as a society. If anything, we're going backwards. Technology might be moving forwards, but our thinking, our consideration for these things is going absolutely backwards. And there's a lot of false stuff out there. I mean, there's so much, and, and again, I don't want to belabor it, but there's so much spiritual junk out there. Um, I just can't encourage you enough, be careful. In Colossians chapter 2, speaking of the work of the cross, the Apostle Paul talks about, he says, having wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And Paul is talking about the same thing that Jesus is talking about here. That the ruler of this world is judged. He's done. He's cast out. Uh, and, and the only, I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, as a Christian, the only authority that, Jesus, that, that Satan has in your life is what you give him. If you, as a Christian, are the vessel, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit, you are Jesus' representation on this earth. And, and living in a fallen world, living in a world that's hostile towards God, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are you when men revile you cast insults at you and say all manner of evil against you 
Why? On account of me. Don't be surprised. Again, shock and awe, not part of it. Expect it and respond rightly in it. Verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Notice the word peoples is in italics here. It means it was added for clarification by the translators. Uh, and it actually says, I think it's a greater statement without it. If, I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. Interesting, the Greek word there, it, it's, uh, it's uh, hypsothenai, hypsothenai, yeah. I have trouble with those sometimes. It has a double meaning. It, it could mean to elevate. It could mean elevation. He's saying if I'm lifted up, but it could also mean to exalt. And it's translated both ways in the Bible. This he said signifying by what death he would die. Now John uh, chapter three talks about this. Remember he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. He's just reflecting on something he's already said. He's already put this out there to the guys. John has already brought it out and he's, Jesus is bringing it out here because it's central to his mission. What's not being said here when he said, I will draw all to myself is universal salvation. No, that's not making a case for that. And I have heard people mistranslate this. It is not universal salvation. He's going to, the whole world saved. Let's all just go sing Kumbaya and sit around a campfire and tell stories. No, that's not what he's saying. He is saying that the offer of salvation will go to all people. But you have to respond. It, it requires an act of my will. The other thing that I see in this, lost my place, is, and I'm just going to visit this for a moment. It's not talking about irresistible grace. And I want to be clear. There's a, a lot of doctrine out there, Reformed theology, that says that God only draws those who are the elect. I don't believe that. And, and it w because then heaven wouldn't be full of people who chose to be there. Heaven would be full of people that God elected to be there. And I don't see that in the scripture. I see over and over again that God leaves the choice to us. And, and so people have said, well, you know, how do you reconcile uh, predestiny with free will? And, and because both are taught, God does predestine. And yet he also says, it is up to you. I love the simplicity. Again, that Chuck Smith, I remember in Bible college one time, I, he, he made this statement and everybody in the whole auditorium just laughed. He said, if you want to really reconcile those two statements, here's how you do it. You want to know if you're predestined? Choose Jesus. It's that simple. You want to know if you're predestined? Choose Christ. You see, because God can see the span of human history and he sees the whole thing. He sees the end and the beginning. Time is something that he invented. It's part of his construct for our reality. He lives outside of that. He's kind of bigger than that. 
And so that he owns time, that he sees the end and the beginning. He sees Adam and Eve here and he sees everything getting wrapped up over here and everything in between doesn't lessen the fact that I, as a human being, as a sentient being, as somebody who has a consciousness, who understands there's a difference between walking in a fallen Adamic nature and a new nature that God offers, that I can choose him. So when Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up and in doing so, I'm going to draw all men, all all people to myself. That's what he's saying. Take it at face value. Don't let people come in there with these kind of weird doctrines that try to make it say something else. The point is, is that I am the one who must respond. The other thing that's being said here, remember, he's been talking to the Greeks And this is a pinnacle. Again, this is a summation of his ministry. His ministry has been to the Jews. In Matthew chapter 10, um, we read, then Jesus is sending out the 12. And Jesus sent the 12 out and commanded them saying, don't go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I grew up in the LDS church, and it is not what they teach. (laughs) Absolutely not. You have to really stretch. It's eisegesis is coming at it with a a preconceived idea of what I want it to say, so I make it say that, and then I try to find scriptures to back it up out of context. What he is saying is there is Jew, and there is Gentile, anybody that's not a Jew. And at this point, Jesus is alluding to these Greeks— that the gospel is going to go to them. I will draw all people to myself, not just the house of Israel. This is to everyone because Jesus knew that the Jews were rejecting him and that through that rejection, the Gentiles would be grafted in. Read Romans chapter 9 through 11. You'll see exactly what he's talking about. But the point is he will draw all people to himself. Excuse me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the writer says this, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That's what he's talking about. Verse 34, then the people answered him and said, we've heard that from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So again, their idea of the the time has come for the son of man to be glorified was that he would be coming in and starting to just kind of clean house. And, And imagine their disillusionment as he says, it's time for me to be glorified. And now I have to die. And, and, and again, it's, it's tweaking these guys' heads. They're, they're, wait a minute. They, again, and they don't know what's going to happen. I mean, he is totally leaving them disillusioned over their idea of Messiah. They say, we've heard that the Christ remains forever. And he does. Daniel 7, Ezekiel 37, Psalm 89, Isaiah 9, 
Uh, Isaiah 9, 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Messiah does remain forever. However, they wanted him to come in and set up a civil government. Not even realizing that his plans for humanity were so far above anything that they could imagine at this point. Those were kingdom prophecies. And yes, they were right in saying that in the law, in, in the Old Testament, they saw that Messiah would remain, but they were not seeing the suffering servant. And that's why John, further on here, goes into the prophecies in Isaiah. Because he talks about, from the Old Testament, he talks about the purpose for Christ here. Jesus said to them, verse 35, a little while longer the light is with you and walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Very important. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and was hidden from them. This is the last public appeal that Jesus would make. The next time he would address the public would be from the cross. And he said, Father, please forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing. His focus now would turn to his men and to his disciples. He's saying to the Jews, believe in me now. Hebrews 4 tells us today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Folks, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Open yourself to Jesus. Open yourself to him, to his revealed specific will for your life, individually. Because the, go the gospel, the, the plan of God at this point stops going to a group, to Israel. It starts going to a group of individuals, Jew and Gentile alike, to the church. And that's how it has been for 2,000 years. Jesus had explained to them that, that his death would bring forth much fruit, but they only hear, heard what they wanted to hear. And, and you know, folks, I, I know at times in my life, I've been in a place where I just allowed my heart to get kind of calloused, and I only, I only want to hear what I want to hear. I don't want to hear anything new or something that challenges my thinking, that challenges perhaps some beliefs that have been in place up until now. I'm kind of comfortable in my nice little rut here. And, and I don't know, if, I heard a definition one time of a rut. A rut is a grave with both ends knocked out. <laughs> <laughs> and we can get in a in, into a rut. We can get into a rut in our, in our thoughts, in our beliefs. And, and, and I'm not saying that we depart from the biblical narrative. We ab absolutely want to adhere to this. But the Bible says to not lean to our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him. And we do well. There's an implied blessing and a threat in this. He's saying if you believe and become sons of light, you'll be blessed. There's a blessing. But the threat is if you reject, you run the risk of darkness overtaking you. Remember, it says that he came as a light into this world. 
and he tabernacled, he tented among men, that he dwelt among men. But it says in, in John chapter 1 that men love darkness more than they love light, for their deeds were evil. He exposes hearts. He's in the business of exposing our hearts. And if that's the case, if there's an area of your life, an area in your heart that he's putting his hand on, yield to him. As your pastor, as your friend, I, I can't encourage you enough. Just yield to the work, lean into the work he wants to do because he has called you by name and he will do the work. You gotta let him. Again, my will comes into play. I've said many times, the only thing that God ever requires of us is that we simply show up. And what that means is I can, I can, I can harden my heart. I'm going to talk about that next week now because I'm running out of time. <laughs> We're not going to finish this chapter today. That just means I have less study to do for next week. Um, no, I'm, I get to study more. But the point is, yield to him. Yield to his work. To be a son or a daughter of light is an inestimable privilege granted by God himself through the work of the cross. But it doesn't stop with the cross. It flows right into the resurrection. That we, through believing in the redemptive work of the cross, it's, you know, having been in the advertising business, I'm really familiar with the phrase, but wait, there's more. You, you see that on television a lot? Yeah, you know, you get the, you know, for 1995, but wait, there's more, and we'll send you two, or whatever. And, I, and I'm not going to sit here and, and cheaply promote Jesus. I'm just saying, but wait, there's more. It's not just the cross. Yes, the cross is vital for us to come into relationship with him. But through the resurrection, he gives us power. Power to live power to dwell on this earth in a way that nobody else gets. You can go through the toughest circumstances. You can have things just going to hell all around you. And I'm not saying figuratively. I mean, I, really, things just go south on us all the time. We go through a lot. Just in the year, less than, a little less than, less than a year I've been in this body. I mean, we've shared pain together. We've shared heartache. We've shared really tough circumstances. And my heart goes out. I know in this body right now that there are really tough things going on. And, and, and I will tell you, it is so clear. Uh, many times as I come alongside someone, I, I will tell you, I don't have the power to affect your circumstances. And I don't. Neither, no, no man does. But I can show you by the grace of God through the working of the Holy Spirit within how to live really, really well within those circumstances. I think of Terry. Little Terry, Dunk, er, not Duncan, uh, uh, not Duncan, the other Terry. Because uh, I'm talking about the Terry that went to heaven recently. And you're here. So. <laughs> but I think of little Terry. I have a picture that I took, and, and I, I haven't shared it with anyone, but I was at the hospital two days before she went to heaven. And she just reached out and she grabbed my hand. I'd been reading the Bible to her and she reaches out and she grabbed my hand. And I've got this, this frail, she must have been all of 70 pounds when she went to heaven, this frail, just beautiful little hand in, in my hand. 
and I'm looking at this thing and I'm, I'm feeling tears welling up. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I just, Lord, I just love this woman. And, 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 and then she kind of drifted off and I, I just went, I got to capture that. And so I, my, if I shake my phone, the camera comes on. So I just kind of shook my phone and, and I, I thought, that's how I want to remember Terry. See, even at her stage in life, she had come into this precious union with Christ and the Holy Spirit was alive and well within her. That didn't mean she lost her sass. You guys know she was sassy. (laughs) But it meant that as she got to the end of her life and she was looking directly at heaven right in front of her, that she was embracing that. She actually relaxed and leaned into it. Uh, And and I just think, Lord, I, I just pray that as we come along others that are in pain, as we come alongside others that are going through hard circumstances, give us your heart. That's part of what comes through the power of the resurrection, that we can actually have the mind, the heart of Christ, that I can be his hands, I can be his heart, I can be him and represent him well as I speak into, as I reach into, as I hold the hand of a dying woman. Praise God that he gives us the ability to do that. Yes, we're saved by his death, but we're given life through his resurrection. And that's how we want to walk. That's how we want to live. That's how we can inspire others to escape the bonds of this world and all the garbage that this culture throws at us and to actually live above it and to influence into it, to have influence into it as we walk. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who has come to dwell in the hearts and the lives of your people. We pray, Father, that as we look at these things in the Gospel of John, that that they would uh, take on meaning and depth in our lives, that as we apply your word, we would rejoice that you haven't, as you say further in this beautiful book, you haven't left us as orphans, but that you've given us the helper to come alongside, to operate inside of us as we yield to that work that you would emerge in our lives. And so thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us to just simply be at the effect of our circumstances, at the effect of our trials, but that we have a merciful high priest who has gone through the heavens for us. I pray for each one here, Father. You know the things we're dealing with, and if things are good, we rejoice. If things are really challenging right now, Father, I pray that your power would be appropriated in each one's life that you, Lord, would would just simply operate from heaven, speak to us, work in us, cause us to be conformed a little bit more to the image of your Son as we go along. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.